I think the last movie I saw that was directed by Luca Besson was Valerian. And well, that's a review for another day, when I really feel up to it. The truth is, I think Luc Besson's been searching for something for the majority of his life. You know, I think he wants another fifth element. Hello my freaky darlings and welcome back to another episode of ABR. I don't have a funny or witty or even remotely interesting story about The Fifth Element. The movie was released during a time period where I just didn't care about movies like that. I must have been 8 or 9 years old, but for some reason that movie just didn't grab me. It's not like I didn't like movies by then. At that point I must have seen Jurassic Park at least a dozen times, and I know I was a fan of Independence Day. Heck, I knew the president's speech by memory. Independence Day was really the start of the modern summer blockbuster, a trend that's carried on until just recently. The truth is, I didn't really come to appreciate the fifth element until years later. I know that the first film I really paid attention to starring Bruce Willis was Armageddon, and then I went backwards in his filmography, eventually getting to the Die Hard movies. I have to review those at some point if only to gush about him for a few hours. I can't say I was too familiar with Luc Besson's work either. He had already made Leon, but I saw that movie years later. And to be totally honest with you, I only saw it once, maybe twice. No, it was only once. I might have to revisit that movie as well, though it's never been too high on the list of movies I have to watch. The first time I saw this movie, I enjoyed it for what it was. A summer blockbuster, a popcorn movie. A story designed to help you turn your brain off for two hours and enjoy the ride. It was years later that I started to pay more attention to it. At some point, I suddenly decided I wanted to tell stories for a living. And while that particular dream is yet to materialize, I can clearly remember that one of the reasons the fifth element suddenly made an impact in my mind was the circumstances behind it. Luc Besson wrote the basics of what would eventually become the fifth element while he was still in high school. I can honestly tell you that I was floored when I discovered that fact. How can it be that a kid wrote this story? Kids can't write good stories, can they? Furthermore, if he did, why can't I do it? I was consumed by this notion, and it's all I could think about in my younger days. The Fifth Element is a good movie, and as this review continues, I'm going to do my best to tell you why. I know that for the most part, most of you agree with me. And it may seem superficial to write a review about a movie that's universally beloved, but that's not the entire reason. I believe that there is more to this movie than meets the eye. Let's start with the music. The music in this movie is very captivating. It creates a tone that drips into the entire movie. It also works to establish that this future is unlike anything you've seen before. It's entirely unique. It doesn't feel like Star Wars. It doesn't feel like Star Trek or any of those movies from the late 90s set in the future. Eric Serra worked really hard with Luc Besson to establish the essence of this movie. Years later, any movie music buff can still recognize the unique melodies that were used to score the fifth element. My old man raised me to recognize all sorts of little details about movies. Most movie buffs do well enough alone to learn actors, directors, producers, and sure enough I paid attention to all that as well. However, my father's very keen when it comes to music. Names like Jerry Goldsmith, James Newton Howard, 
and of course, John Williams were a staple in my household. We made it a point to recognize the work of these musical geniuses that set the tone to some of the greatest movies in cinematic history. Alan Silvestri doesn't get a lot of big name recognition. He didn't create the score to Superman, Indiana Jones, or Star Wars, but he's the man behind the iconic music of Back to the Future. And if you listen closely, you'll find there's a very close similarity to Predator. In fact, Predator sounds very similar to Back to the Future, as both of them were scored by Silvestri. Oh yeah, he also came up with the theme to the Avengers. People don't talk about him the way they talk about some of the other names I just mentioned. Heck, they mentioned Danny Elfman more. <laughs> I like Danny Elfman just fine, I'm just saying. And there's new names coming up all the time. Graham Rebell, Harry Gregson Williams, and of course, Hans freaking Zimmer. Music in movies is a really big deal. It's crucial to creating the feel, the mood of the story and making the movie as memorable as possible. I didn't really talk about this in my Nausicaa review, but this is true in all movies. Think about Jaws for a minute. Dude, if you haven't seen Jaws in a while, go watch Jaws. It's a masterpiece for a reason. Think about Jaws, the infamous scene where the shark is stalking its prey. You know the music. I mean, we all know it. Even if you've never seen the movie, you still know what I'm talking about. It's that iconic. That simple little melody is a part of our culture, and we all know what it's meant to instill. It's fear, dude, and it works extremely well. Watch that scene with that music and mute the audio. Just do that for one second. It's still a scary and intense scene, but without the music, there's no punch, no ancient sense of terror behind it. The same can be said about the fifth element. The music in this movie does a lot to immerse you in the story. The characters may look human, and they may be speaking English. Their motivations are clear enough for the audience to understand, but that's about it. The world they know and the world they were raised in is strange, bizarre, and totally different. And the music helps in selling you this illusion. And it does it so well, you don't even realize it's there. I discovered this in the oddest of places. I was removing pieces of a broken tile off the floor of the facility I used to work in, where at 3am in the morning, I had the weirdest desire to listen to the movie score of The Fifth Element. In dim lighting, with only the glow of my headlamp to accompany me as the score played on, I could picture every scene of the movie, as if I was watching the movie and felt sad when the score ended, because it felt like the movie ended. You know the music score is good when it's tied so well to the movie, and The Fifth Element does that without breaking a sweat. Okay, let's move on and we'll start with the plot of this movie. The Fifth Element is a simple story. A few weeks back, I talked about how some stories are simple in the sense that there's not too many layers behind some of them. Not every movie has to be complex, intricate. Some of the best stories ever told are simple, and The Fifth Element is a good example of this. A legend, a warning in the past, tells of a great evil that befalls the universe every 5,000 years. Someone, somewhere, has devised a method to combat this evil four stones that contain the four basic elements, and uh, a fifth one, in the form of a perfect being. The movie starts with some archaeologists in Egypt who are about to uncover the secret when the aliens show up and take the stones and the being with them. We cut to the future 300 years later, when the ultimate evil has returned. Our everyday protagonist, Corbin Dallas, suddenly and inexplicably, finds himself face to face with the supreme being. 
a woman of extraordinary beauty named Lilu. He takes Lilo to a priest she knows, and I'm going to talk more about this detail later on, and we find out that they're going to save the world. Later, Corbin's former bosses task him with doing the exact same thing. His mission is to save the world. The story goes off-world, where we meet the person who has the elemental stones, and Corbin recovers them. He races off to Egypt, and after a few tense moments and a declaration of love, he saves the world, and the movie ends. Okay, so there's more to the movie than just that. My last review, A Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, was a little bit more detailed than that. I didn't mean for it to come out like that, but that movie had more twists and turns than this one. It doesn't make it better than this one. I was just more lost trying to follow Nausicaa than I was with The Fifth Element. You can make the case that it's reasons like this one that make The Fifth Element a popcorn flick, something to be enjoyed, consume, and then discard it. But like I said, I believe there's more to it than that. Movies like Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind or The Fifth Element both have to engage in world building in order to tell their stories convincingly. World building is exactly that. It's one of the most important aspects of telling a story, though it's not always necessary. I mentioned Independence Day before. The movie Independence Day tells an interesting story of mankind surviving and fighting an alien invasion, but there's little to no world building in Independence Day. It's set in the United States, for the most part. It takes place in our world, as it looked like in the late 90s, with the only characters out of place being the aliens. The movie didn't have to sell the world as it was then, because it was the world most of us lived in. It may look strange now, with no one carrying smartphones, and no notion of the modern internet, but that was the world we lived in. Any movie that takes place in the past or the future has to do more work. Establishing the setting of your world is a good start, but it's not enough. It just tells us about the world, but it doesn't make us believe it. Most of the fifth element takes place in the future, 300 years from now, and the movie does a good job of selling this idea. It shows us a drastically altered version of Brooklyn, New York, with flying vehicles and skyscrapers that are incredibly tall. The clothing is different. The way people talk is also different. People live on the moon. The culture is drastically different. Just pay attention to the way the uniforms for the ladies are designed. I should tell you enough. They visit other planets. Lightspeed travel is commonplace. It probably takes forever to get anywhere, but it still exists. Oh, and alien races are a thing. It's normal. It's commonplace. At some point, they either made first contact or we found them, but that was a long time ago. And now it's no big deal. The movie also doesn't make it a big deal. Despite all these changes, there are a few leftovers of the world we used to live in. They don't really make sense, but I believe they were left in on purpose. I hope it was done on purpose. There's a scene where Corbin Dallas, played by Bruce Willis, is having lunch and he gets a letter in the mail. The mail is received through a pneumatic tube system, so it kinda looks sci-fi and spacey, but we've had that stuff since like the 1950s. Anyway, he gets a letter through the mail that lets him know he just got fired. It's a funny scene and Bruce Willis gets to make funny quips in his usual diehard style deadpan delivery. But you know it feels out of place. 300 years later and we're still using physical mail? That's a little odd. The other one that feels out of place is Ruby Rod. I'm gonna talk more about him later on but I need to say this now. Ruby Rod is a radio personality. Think about it. 300 years later, and people are still listening to the radio? 
how many people listen to the radio now? Does radio suddenly make a big comeback? I found it funny, and it kind of makes sense, a sort of. The internet as we know it is everywhere, and it's hard to picture a world without it, but that's exactly the world we used to live in back then, and very few writers were able to correctly predict its rise. The fifth element is no exception to that. It's the future, but there's no internet. Computers are a thing. We see David and Lilo use computers to study and learn. They exist, but you're trying to tell me no one fought to connect them? It all has to do with when the story was written. If Besson wrote his story in the late 70s or 80s, then it makes perfect sense that his story about the future would have no internet, no smartphones, flying cars, travel to the stars, aliens, and all the other fantastical aspects of society we see in his story have been staples of science fiction for decades. Even though the concept of the internet had existed since the 1960s, with its precursor being ARPANET, the internet as it exists today came out of nowhere. That's just the truth. It was established very quickly, and before we even knew what was going on, we had things like social networks, massive online marketplaces, and the dark web. It really was impossible to predict. So what did Luc Besson do? Well, he took established notions and combined them with a story of his own, with characters that live and function in this world. Let's talk for a little bit about Zorg. Just a little, as I'm going to delve more into the characters themselves in the next section. But hear me out. Zorg is the bad guy in our story. Well, the antagonist. There's no exposition dumps in the story that tell us this explicitly. But the movie makes it clearly known. And it also tells us that Zorg has a reputation. He is known in his world as a bad guy. An evil man. The fact that the movie sells this so well is proof that the world building they did in the fifth element was no joke. Luc Besson clearly understood the importance of this and made sure to bring his vision of the future to life in a way that was easily understood and portrayed on film. He definitely tried his best to do this with Valerian as well, but the visuals were not the problem with Valerian. Again, a story for another time. Moving on, one of the oddest things about The Fifth Element in 1997 and later on is that it had no sequel. Here you have a massively popular movie, a financially successful film, with actors that I'm pretty sure could have been signed on to at least another movie. It always felt to me like the world of The Fifth Element was developed enough to contain more than one story. And while you can make the argument that saving the world again using the stones wouldn't have made sense, I'm pretty sure another story could have been told. Perhaps by expanding the lore and adding a few extra characters. I think we all would have enjoyed another movie with Ruby Rod. Now, I'm not the type of person to demand sequel after sequel. And in hindsight, living in a world where The Fifth Element 2, Electric Boogaloo was a financial flop, doesn't sound that appealing. Perhaps it was best we were left wanting more. The funniest thing is, had this movie come out 10 years later, I'm sure it would have had its share of sequels. I'll go as far as to say that, more than likely, after the success of the first film, some greedy executive out there would have been pushing for a cinematic universe. Maybe a movie that uses Zorg again as a bad guy? A prequel, obviously? Let's make a movie that features Corbin Dallas in his younger days, in the military. And let's cast Chris Pratt in it. I don't know. It could have happened. You don't know. None of us know. Universal tried to cash in on the whole cinematic universe craze with the monster roadmap they released. 
The Mummy, the one with Tom Cruise, not Brendan Fraser. That was supposed to be the start of their big thing, their Iron Man. Man, am I glad that didn't take off. I could be wrong, though. It's entirely possible that a series of movies featuring different characters, heroes, villains, set in the far-off future in New York would have been massively successful. Like I said, who knows? It's one of those what-ifs that we'll just never know the answer to. With that being said, let's move on to character development and take a look at how our characters changed in this short but significant journey. Character development in any story really benefits from the passage of time. Of lately, the best movies that I've seen that have featured really good character development are oddly enough, the films of the MCU. Like I said in my previous episodes, it's all about time. The character arcs that some of the heroes went through in those films was nothing short of amazing. They even went so far as to completely retool certain characters, again all of it because they had the time to do so. When it comes to a single film, it's a lot harder to focus on your entire cast. Instead, a good movie will develop one or two characters and use the supporting characters to develop and resolve their respective arcs. A great movie will make these supporting characters integral to the story. It will make them compelling, dynamic, memorable. The fifth element falls somewhere in between. It's hard to say whether the characters in the fifth element feel as real as they should. With one movie to do all the heavy lifting, all we got is the most basic of character traits and developments. But it is something, and the actors do their absolute best to cover up some of these deficiencies and give life to what we see in the movie. Corvin Dallas is supposed to be the everyman hero of the 23rd century. Is it the 23rd century? I'm gonna have to look that up later. He's ex-military, a fighter pilot, proficient, and highly decorated. We also see him in a little bit of a rut when the movie starts. He's divorced lives alone, and has a job he doesn't particularly enjoy. He's not the type of character that makes things happen, but rather the story happens to him. Lilu literally lands right on top of him. That's not to say he's a passive man, he's precise, decisive, and has good instincts when it comes to danger. We also see he's a bit of a dreamer. In his conversations with Finger, his boss, we get a clear sense of the kind of man he is, and what he wants in a woman. In a word, Perfect. Yeah, me too, pal. Like I've said, the story happens to him in the way that most stories happen around our protagonist. And he goes along with it. He's reserved. And it's a good thing there's solid chemistry between Corbin and Lilu. As our two main acts, this is crucial. Heck, it's not just crucial. It's pretty much the crux of the entire film. And hint, it's the reason Valerian was an awful film. The first conversation he has with Lilu is funny touching and endearing. And Bruce Willis does what he does best. His surprise and intriguing meeting Lilu in such a fashion is entirely his own. It sells his later actions extremely well. And one of the things that I love about this sequence is the fact that at one point he speaks for the audience. When he's running away from the cops who have a vested interest in catching Lilu because she escaped, even though no one told her she wasn't supposed to do that, he laughs and remarks as to the absurdity of the situation. It's a great little line and sells Corbin Dallas to the audience in the most subtle ways. After escaping and taking Lilo to Vito Cornelius, again he interacts with her, and these scenes further grow his character. He's not intrigued anymore, he's bewitched, as well he should be. Mila Jojovic in her prime was quite stunning, and the movie doesn't hide this in the slightest bit. 
He regrets kissing her without permission and goes back home, only to be drafted by his former captain, colonel, commander, I forget what rank his senior officer was. As he comically shoves the three into the freezer, he tells them he's going to remarry, but that he can't have the military be a part of his life anymore, as it was the reason his marriage failed. I know it's a throwaway line meant for comedic effect, but I wonder if there's any truth behind it. He wasn't a special forces. He was highly decorated. You don't achieve these goals without sacrificing something. Or somebody. Maybe he did push his wife away without realizing it. It's little details like this that flesh out characters in a more realistic manner. Little details like this that you might miss the first time you watch a movie. As the movie goes, Corbin's changes are directly tied to his budding relationship with Lilu. Everyone else sees the supreme being, the one meant to save them all. Corbin sees past all of that and just sees Lilu and acts as such. I can't remember a single time in the film where anyone else even uses her actual name. Vito may use it once or twice, but that's it. And no one even bothers to ask for it until Corbin asks himself. The two of them split up on Flosten, and we see Corbin deal with the invading aliens in the usual fashion. Shoot first, ask questions later. Or, none at all. Now that I think about it, even the diva doesn't say her name. She just refers to her as the fifth element. The diva does tell Corbin that she needs help. She may be perfect. She may function like a weapon, but she's more than that. She's a person. She says that Lilo needs love, and Corbin just kind of nods and understands it. And I always thought this scene to be odd, but let's come back to it when we look at Lilo a bit more in depth. Corbin takes off with the stones and Lilo and gets off the cruise ship, only to be told that the mission is not over yet and he still has to save all of Earth, a prospect that doesn't face him in the slightest bit. As they're traveling to Earth, he tries to cheer Lilo by reminding her that there are good things in this world worth saving, like love. Critical moment in the film. Again, let's just come back to it. He's hesitant to say this to her, like if he doesn't believe it at first. It's at the climax of the movie where we see Corbin overcome his doubts. And at this moment, fully convinced, he tells Lilo he loves her. Bruce Willis delivers the line as best as he can. But it's always felt clunky. I mean, does he? Can you fall in love with someone in just two days? I don't know. It's a good thing the mechanism was triggered, the world was saved, and the movie ends. It's not much of a character arc, but it is there. We need the hero to save the world and fall in love. And that's what happens. I think the reason the movie gets away with the ending is because of the chemistry between Bruce and Mila. We don't get any more development for Corbin past this. The movie had to establish Corbin as an everyman, and it did that. It had to establish him as a reluctant hero, and it did that. We see the spark between him and Lilu, so yeah, it could have been love on his end. Now, Lilu I have a problem with. Not with the actress, Mila Jovovich, or Jovovich. Have I been saying that wrong? Mila Jovovich is a fine actress. Not great, but not bad either. And there's plenty of those. She was such a sport through the filming of this movie, going so far as to work on the script by inventing large sections of the divine language that Lilo spoke and putting up with that horrible wig they made her use. She's the supreme being and her hair looks like that. It looks like someone tried to style it with a blindfold on. I'm just saying. The problem I have with Lilo is that she's a plot device, 
Not a person. Not at first. Let me explain. First, early I mentioned that no one outside of Corbin calls her by her name, which kinda alienates her. She's supposed to be someone who doesn't fit in, someone who's just woken up after a really, really long nap, and doesn't understand the world she's meant to save. She's supposed to be naive about how things work and how society has changed. These aspects of her character are crucial to the story, and I'm glad to say that for the most part, they all work. She doesn't speak the language because why would she? She gets spooked and escapes containment because of course she would. We see the uncertainty and the wonder and the fear in her face when she escapes and sees the world for the first time. And Mila sells it. It's a really great scene. And she just does it really, really well. And she doesn't even have to say anything. I still don't know why she jumped though. So, if these aspects of her personality work, then what's the problem? All the other characters get little moments where there's no action, and they're just having conversations, and these conversations reveal a lot about themselves to the audience. These little moments are crucial, and she gets them too, just not as much as the other characters, and that's a shame. We don't really get to know her that well. She's meant to save the world, and that's how she stays for a good chunk of the movie. It's almost like she's got amnesia too, because she doesn't talk about the past. Hell, she hardly talks at all. It's a good thing that at some point, Bassam must have picked up on this, because, well, she does have an arc, and it's a good one. Yeah, she's meant to save the world, and understands her place, her significance, and goes along with it, until she begins to see what the world is like in the 23rd century. Until she realizes what human nature really is. Why save their lives when they don't treasure life itself? This is a great question to ask. It's the kind of question a character in her position should be asking, just not at the end of the film. There's a great scene in the movie where David, the young priest, is trying to get info on Flossed Paradise. And we see her studying. Cornelia says she's catching up with history. Okay. So why is she studying history by topic instead of chronologically? It's a great scene because we get to hang out with her a little bit. But that always upsets me. They could have done so much with this scene. If she would have studied history chronologically, she would have ran into armed conflicts almost right away. Imagine introducing that little nugget of doubt right then and there. Why should you fight for them? Why should you protect them? They don't appreciate it. They don't value it. If she's struggling with these doubts, with these fears as the movie goes along, it does wonders for her character. It really establishes her humanity early on. And we could have had two sides to her. The fish out of pond, new world awe, and the I have to save them, but I'm unsure side. Think about the scene where she runs into Sorg. She just tosses the case and jumps into the vent, and he shoots at her, because he's the bad guy. Okay, so let's extend that scene by two or three minutes. Imagine they actually talk, and Zork tries to convince her to give up the stones, and explains his plan to her. She reiterates by telling him that she has to save mankind, and Zork asks her why. Why save them, when you see what they're like? This would further cement and establish the doubt she's been struggling with the entire movie. Maybe she doesn't reply to this, but you can see it in her face. Her inaction bores Zorg, and he just tries to shoot her, 
And that's when she jumps into the vent and the scene plays out like it did in the movie. This one little addition, two, three extra minutes, and a few lines of dialogue, this would have helped both characters immensely. This one little scene would have fixed Zorg entirely, because I've got problems with him too. When she gets rescued by Corbin after crying in the vent when she's hurt, her jaded attitude would have been entirely justifiable, and the audience would have understood it a lot better and empathized more with her. The emotional payoff in the scene where Corbin confesses his love for her would have been huge. Someone loves her, and that's worth saving. Love is worth saving. There are other things worth saving. This question and the answer we get at the end should have been her main arc. Instead, it gets brought up and resolved at the end and it feels empty. Corbin was always going to save the world. But they needed a reason why though, right? Don't we all need a reason to save the world? It's a missed opportunity and it's always been the problem I've had with her as a character. Ian Holm did a really good job as Vito Cornelius despite the limited role he plays in the story. His arc is minimal, very small, and he comes out of the story pretty much the same way he went in, perhaps a bit different. For the first half of the movie, he's an exposition machine. He tells the president what's happening with the ultimate evil and how to defeat it. Later on, he's the point of contact between Lilo and Corbin when he delivers her, and he explains to him, and to us as well, what she is, and what she's capable of. The scene between Vito and Zorg is a masterpiece, it's a memorable sequence where two titans of cinema go at it with words and presence. Let's break down that scene in detail when we talk about Zorg, but Cornelius shines in this dialogue. It's a shame he doesn't get more of these little moments. For the second half of the film, he's comedic relief. I did say he had an arc, a little one, but it's there, and it's how he sees Lilo and what his role in all of it is. At the beginning, he's resolved to recover the stones from the good aliens. I don't want to try to say their names too much because it's hard. Anyway, he wants to get the stones and save the world. He even tells Corbin he's going to save the world with the stones. When Corbin delivers Lilo, he remarks that Lilo is a woman, not a man. Not in a bad way, he's just surprised. As the movie goes along, he realizes he can't save the world. He can't help Lilo, but Corbin can. And he drops the hostility he showed Corbin early on in the movie and proceeds to help him. They didn't really have to do that with the character, but they did. And Ian Holm did a tremendous job with it, as he did with most of his acting roles. Ruby Rod is the outlier. Ruby Rod is the exception. Ruby Rod is in this movie for pure comedic relief. His sole purpose is to lighten the mood set the tone for what Flossed in Paradise was supposed to be. And I'm just going to say it now, it's Hawaii, right? Uh, it just feels like Hawaii. Anyway, we first see him in a very brief cat food commercial, the contest that Corbin wins in order to get to Flossed in Paradise. This is a major plot point and involves cat food. It's a nice little touch and it works. When we get introduced to Ruby Rob properly for the first time in the movie, dude, that's how you do it. In one word, flamboyant. Ruby Rod is the disc jockey of the 23rd century, and he knows it, and he wants you to know it too. He has the hottest show in the galaxy, and he's supposed to spend the night as part of the contest rules with Corbin. I think it's fair to say he gets more than what he bargained for. His attitude towards Corbin quickly changes once the bad aliens show up and start wrecking the place, and he tags along with the rest of the heroes for the rest of the story. 
which is kind of weird, but I guess it works. And they did need one person at the end of the movie. Ruby Rod has no arc. And that's okay. The only thing that changes about him is that by the end of the night, that's the best show he's ever made. He doesn't need the arc. Chris Tucker, in the role of a lifetime, moves with grace and flow and just steals every scene he's in. He was magnificent. I don't think I've ever seen Chris Tucker in a better role than that. And he's had some good ones too. The fifth element doesn't need Ruby Rod, but I'm glad they got Ruby Rod. So let's move on to Zorg. John Baptiste, Emmanuel, Zorg. What a name. What a character. And they got an actor that brought him to life in a way that's still memorable to this day. Gary Oldman deserves every accolade he's ever gotten and so much more. The man is brilliant. He's just gotten better as he's gotten older. His performance in The Fifth Element was out of this world. As is everything he does. I cannot praise him enough to be honest with you. So let's just talk about his role as Zorg. Zorg is the human antagonist. He's a businessman of sorts. Who runs an empire that does all sorts of things. His name is on the building, which is kind of weird for a bad guy. He's not lurking in the shadows. He's not manipulating people into doing his bidding. He simply pays cash. He has employees. The first time we see Zork properly, he's receiving the case with the four stones in it that the Mangalores, the bad aliens, have recovered from the destroyed ship of the good aliens. The Mandashawan? Is that what they were called? I think so. I didn't write it down. Anyway, he delivers a monologue unlike any other in the film, and it would be the most memorable one if it wasn't for the existence of Ruby Rod. He sells the bad aliens and the audience the ZF-1, a gun that's as iconic today as it was when it was first shown off in the film. He opens the case and finds no stones in it. It really says something about the Mangalores that they knew there was no stones in the case, but sought to deliver it just the same. Zork's response to all this is some of the funniest lines in the movie, and Gary Oldman goes to town with the script he was given. In my notes, I have one line written over and over again about Zork's character. Gary Oldman had a lot of fun on the set of this movie. You can just tell by the way he sells this villain in the movie. He's so overly villainous in the way he talks, in the way he moves. It's almost comical, but none of us are laughing. You can tell he suffers a bit from delusions of grandeur and that he's a bit disturbed. The conversation he has with Cornelius is one of the best sequences in the film. Both actors are allowed to fully display their acting chops, and they do so to the delight of the audience. The song and dance he gives about the robots and how much good he actually does for the world is perfectly accentuated by him almost choking on a cherry. I keep saying it's brilliant over and over again, and it is. Later on, when his subordinates have failed to capture Corbin, failed to get on the flight to Floston Paradise, he decides to simply do it himself, even if he is now at odds with the bad aliens, and this is where I have a bit of a problem with good old Zorg. We know he's a businessman, a fairly successful one. He's a man of influence, so my question is, what was the plan exactly? Retrieve the stones for Mr. Shadow and be paid for it? Did he really need the money? See. As much as I can scour, there's no motivation here. Zorg is not crazy. Zorg is not dumb. He's well-spoken, sophisticated, suave, persuasive. Why work with Mr. Shadow to retrieve the stones and what was the end goal? If he knew who Mr. Shadow was, 
why help him? It's not like he was going to be spared. Did he know? The movie doesn't go out of its way to properly explain this. So his motivations have always been a bit of a mystery to me. Earlier, I proposed that simply editing the scene where he meets up with Lilu on the cruise ship to include a few lines of dialogue explaining his motivations would have gone a long way towards fixing this gaping hole in the narrative. I've always asked myself why. You gotta have reasons to make your characters take a course of action. You can't just write because he's the bad guy or because he's the good guy. These terms are relative and the audience knows that. The best bad guys are the ones that are persuasive. The ones that make just enough sense for you to start questioning your own reality, your own reasons, your personal point of view. It's why Thanos is memorable. It's why the Joker is so powerful. Deep down inside, their arguments are compelling. And this is terrifying. Sorg's motives are childish in comparison. He wants money. Even though he doesn't need money. He wants chaos so he can restore order and be loved. That's kind of a stretch. I've heard the argument that Zorg was being manipulated by Mr. Shadow, but I don't buy this either. There's no hints of that at all in the movie. And while we see that he fears Mr. Shadow, we don't see a reason why he should. It's kind of hard to do that though. Cosmic horror is best when it's left to the viewer's imagination. Anyway, it's just something that's always bugged me about Zorg. Ultimately, it's the strength of Gary Oldman's acting that elevates Zorg from a generic villain to a memorable one, even if his motives are less than clear. Even as I began to plot out the script for this week's episode, I was thinking about this section right here. What is the theme to the fifth element? Is there a message that it wants to convey to the audience? You know, I wouldn't have thought so until a few years ago when I was watching this movie with my family and as the movie is ending, I blurred out the following. She's not the fifth element, love is. The rest of my family turns around to face me and laugh. And then I laughed. I must have seen this movie dozens of times by now. But I never really got that until just recently. It was the presence of love that triggered the weapon. She's just the channel, not the weapon. So I guess the theme is love will save us all? Love can save us all? It's a nice sentiment. Love is a powerful and motivating force. It can stretch across time and space, and if it's strong enough, it never fades away. Is that what the movie was trying to say? I leave it to you. As to what the movie was trying to make me feel, hmm, that one's a bit hard. I like the style and music of the movie. It really does set a tone and a feel that's entirely its own. It made me laugh. It grabs your attention very early on in the movie. It's memorable. All of its characters are brought to life with great actors. It generated suspense very well, and it's an all-around great story. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and a lot of us did as well. Be honest with me, how many of you have quoted Lilu, or Corbin, or Zorg? The mark of a great movie is how often people quoted it, and we all did that a bunch, and some of us still do. Okay, I felt some frustration with a few things. Okay, so... Corbin delivers an unconscious Lilu to Cornelius. She's just woken up, and the movie leads us to believe that she's been in that state for like 5,000 years. But she knows she needs to be taken to Cornelius. I'm gonna let that slide, because it's an issue, but it's not the main issue. Corbin kisses her, 
and she pulls out his gun and threatens him? Okay, so the dude shouldn't have kissed an unconscious woman. I raised my eyebrow when I caught that this time. I get that. But again, she knows how to grab his gun and how to use it? Like, how? We didn't have guns 5,000 freaking years ago. She's never seen a gun. It just makes for more questions. Has she been asleep or not? She knew who Cornelius was. She knew what the gun was and how to use it, how to point it at someone in a menacing fashion. Later on, she explains to Cornelius and David that the stones are with the diva and she's looking for the address using the computer they have in their home like a champion. What? Is all that stored in her infinite knowledge DNA? Ugh, if that's the case, no one bothered to store the whole human nature is awful, humans are awful, but there's still good reasons to save them idea in there? They're just holes. Unnecessary ones that didn't need to be there. Or could it just been adjusted by a throwaway line explaining that she's been awake for some time in preparation for the fight against evil? Boom. Done. I don't like writing the movie for the writers. They're getting paid to do this. I'm not. The audience is not. So anytime we have to make these giant leaps of assumption, it just frustrates me. Okay, one more thing and I'm done ragging on the film because I really do like this movie, but it's not without its flaws. So what happens afterwards? She defeats the ultimate evil and then what? She goes back in the box? That's kind of messed up. She lives a life with Corbin in the future? What's going to happen 5,000 years from now when this ultimate evil clown shows up again? Did the people that make her just make a new one and spout some more nonsense about how she's the supreme being? I guess these are good questions, if the movie's making me think about them like that. But they're still frustrating. A small resolution on that end would have been nice. And if you're thinking to yourself, dude, it's just a movie and it needed an ending, you're new here, aren't you? Okay, aside all of that, I still like the movie. And I always enjoy it when I watch it. And it's on my list of favorite films of all time. And for good reason, too. So why did I like it? Well, for all the reasons I just said. Good movie, memorable characters, amazing soundtrack, vibrant setting. And it's Bruce Willis in his prime. Mila Jobovich in her prime. Chris Tucker was allowed to go wild. And Gary Oldman closes out the main cast with a villain that had no business being as good as it turned out to be. What's not to like? So would I recommend it? I don't have to recommend it. Odds are, you've seen it, and you like it. Watch it again, have yourself a nice afternoon or evening. Can't go wrong with a modern classic like this one, and if you're one of the few people on earth that haven't seen it, then go watch it, rent it, borrow it. If you like movies of any sort, I guarantee you'll enjoy it. The Fifth Element is a great movie, and since its release, it's become a cult classic. It's a staple of late 90s sci-fi action movies. Like I said, it's a modern classic. I had a lot of fun watching it and actually reviewing the movie for you guys. It gave me an opportunity to obsess and geek out about it all over again. And anytime I have that opportunity, you better believe I'm on board. If you stuck around to the end, I sincerely thank you for all the support. It's already been 5 episodes and it's been so much fun. Lots of work, but I've enjoyed it all. If you want more, listen to our other episodes. Take care of yourselves, my fellow travelers, and beware the wasteland.